1: We uh, live in a world that is increasingly divided and polarized, so whatever the issue is, whether it's um, conspiracy theories, or uh, election results, or climate change, or racism, or whatever it might be, it seems like nobody can agree on anything. So if we do find something that everybody agrees on, we should probably pay attention to that. For instance, people disagree on gun violence. What causes it? What's the solution? People disagree. But nobody, and I mean nobody, disagrees that when someone walks into a school or a gay nightclub or a synagogue or some other public space and murders multiple people, nobody disagrees that that is profoundly evil. One of the big things that our society agrees on is that there is profound evil and darkness in this world. And one of the other big things our culture tends to agree on is that as human beings, we have both the responsibility and the power to overcome that darkness and make this world the place it ought to be. It's kind of like um, when I was a kid, we would gather as a family in the living room on Sunday nights and watch TV. One of my favorite shows was The Six Million Dollar Man. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Children of the 70s, amen. Um, It's all about a NASA test pilot who crashes and when they pull him out of the smoking wreck, his body is destroyed. But every week, the voiceover in the opening credits would say, Steve Austin, astronaut, a man buried alive. Gentlemen, we have the power. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better, stronger, faster. Right. <laughs> when we look at the darkness and the smoking wreck of our world, we tend to approach it the same way. We have the technology. We have the power. As as um, modern Western people, one of our biggest assumptions is that we have the power to overcome the darkness and make this world the place it ought to be. Christmas calls all of that into question but only if we understand what christmas really is which is a challenge in our culture for instance i read a blog some years ago that described christmas like this it said the celebration of christmas is not a celebration of a particular religious faith but a celebration of an all-inclusive love for one and all jesus christ is a representation of the celebration of love kindness generosity and goodness for humankind now this is a, a popular idea. It says that Jesus is just one of many examples that inspire us to become better, more loving, more inclusive people. We have the technology. But, but, um, and that all we really need is, is for something or someone to inspire us to, um, to activate the resources that are already inside of us. But, but what if Christmas is the opposite of that? In other words, what if we don't have the technology? what if we don't have the power or we could say it like this what if what we really need is not inspiration but intervention in the weeks leading up to christmas we're looking at various stories about the birth of jesus and what they show us about who jesus is and therefore what Christmas really means. This passage this morning explodes all of our old ideas about what it means to overcome the darkness of our world. Let's take a look and see three things this morning. This passage shows us who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what it means for us. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and what it means for us. Let's look at each one of those, okay? First, who Jesus is. And let me begin just by saying that there's no way that we can fully unpack all that Jesus is in just one point of one sermon. And that's why in January, we're actually going to begin a whole sermon series on this question of who is Jesus. So please keep coming back. But this morning, I just want to focus on one big idea, and you see it in a few places here. First, notice that the angel tells Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This means that the life growing in Mary's womb doesn't have a human father. The real father is God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Second. Notice that the angel says you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now this is quoting a couple of places from the Old Testament. Places like Isaiah 35 which says God will come and save you, that is his people. Or places like Psalm 130 which says the Lord will redeem Israel from all their sins. Do you notice the similarity between all of these? Notice also that the angel substitutes the name of Jesus for where the name of God is in these verses. In other words, to say God will save his people and to say Jesus will save his people is to say the same thing. And lastly, just to make sure that we don't miss the point, notice that uh, it says that all uh, that's happening here is to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, which said, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, Matthew, the gospel writer, is trying to tell us as clearly as he possibly can that Jesus is not just another human being. He's telling us that Jesus is God. Now, we need to camp out here for just a minute, because it's at this point that many people would say, okay, we just abandoned the realm of history and entered the realm of myth. Many people would say, look, you know." The idea of the divinity of Jesus Christ. The the church invented that hundreds of years after the historical Jesus lived on earth. But it's a myth. It's a legend. It's not history. Okay? But if we actually look at the history, what does it show us? For instance, there was a letter written by a, a Roman official named Pliny the Younger. He wrote it to the emperor at the time, a fellow named Trajan, Um, And in that letter, this letter is dated about 110 A.D., which is not hundreds of years after Jesus. It's roughly 80 years after the crucifixion. And in this letter, Pliny is asking Trajan for advice about whether or not he should continue executing Christians. And he says he's got a couple of Christian female slaves that he's been torturing, trying to get information out of them. By the way, he calls them deacons, which means that these female slaves were leaders in the church. But um, what were they guilty of? Here's what Pliny says in the letter. The sum total of their guilt was the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung a hymn to Christ as to a God. This means that roughly 80 years after the crucifixion, Christians were worshiping Jesus as God. It wasn't hundreds of years later. This is early. But we can go even earlier than this. This passage we just read from Matthew Um, is telling us that Jesus is God. Most historians date the Gospel of Matthew to roughly 50 to 60 years after the crucifixion. But we can go even earlier than that. Most of the Apostle Paul's letters were written 20 to 30 years after the crucifixion. I don't know if you know this, but Paul in his letters will sometimes quote hymns that were being sung about Jesus, kind of like you or me quoting a song that was written in the 90s. In one of uh, his letters, in the Colossians, uh, one of the hymns he quotes says this It says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him. Friends, here's the point. Within just a handful of years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Orthodox monotheistic Jews did a complete 180 on their worldview and were worshiping a human being as God. It wasn't hundreds of years later. This is is not a a teradiddle or a fabrication of the church. This was there from the very beginning. And at this point, maybe some people would say, okay, so maybe the earliest Christians were worshiping Jesus as God. But Jesus himself never claimed to be God, except he did. And if you want to know where uh, and when, come back on January 8th, when we begin our series On who is Jesus, and we'll do a deep dive in that question. But before we move on, let me just draw out a couple of implications of all of this. And the first is this I want to encourage you that when you open the Bible, you are encountering something that is historically reliable. The idea that the divinity of Jesus is some fabrication that was invented by the church hundreds of years after the historical Jesus. That's the real myth. When you open the Bible, you're encountering something that's historically reliable. But second, we need to understand that Jesus is radically unique and different from every other religious leader that ever lived. If you look at every other major religious leader, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or whoever it might be, they all basically said, here's how you find God. Here's how you find spiritual life. None of them would have ever dared to say anything like, I am God. I am the source of spiritual life. Only Jesus had the gall to say, I did not come to show you how to find God. I am God come to find you. Listen, I understand how offensive this sounds in our pluralistic culture. You know, we say, no, no, no. All religions are equally valid ways to find God. So if you're hearing this and you're offended this morning, I want to encourage you, that's a good thing because it means that you're actually beginning to wrestle with the real Jesus, with the the historical Jesus, not the Jesus that's been invented by our culture. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen who Jesus is. He's God. Secondly, we need to look at what Jesus does. And we see it in verse 21. Uh, The angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you weren't already offended enough by the idea that Jesus is God, this is giving you even more reason to be offended, especially in our culture, which says that things like sin and salvation are primitive, archaic ideas that harm and oppress people. We need to get rid of those ideas. But can we dig just a little deeper? First, notice that um, when, when it says that Jesus will save his people from their sins, His people, in the immediate context, that means the people of Israel. They were very religious, pious, devout people. This is talking about what we would call good religious people. It's saying they need to be saved from their sins. So maybe you grew up in church. You've always followed God. You've never had um, a season of rebellion or a major moral failure in your life. You've always been a really good person. But this is showing you that you need to be saved from your sins. That that we all need to confront the darkness that's in our own hearts. And if you ask, well, what is this darkness that we need to confront? Hold on to that question. I want to look at one more thing, and then we're going to come back to that question. What is the darkness we need to confront? But here's the other thing. Um, Some of you might be here, and maybe you're not religious, you're maybe you're spiritually curious or spiritually skeptical or somewhere in between all of that but you're hearing this and you're thinking well this is good i like this because religious people do need to be challenged especially here in america where the church has a long history of being complicit in abuse and the oppression of black and brown people you hear this and you you like this but i want you to understand that this is challenging you too how think about it um the people of Israel at this time were, were not just religious people, they were also people who were living under Roman imperialism and subjugation. That means that God is not just talking to religious people, He's also talking to oppressed people and saying, You need to be saved from your sins. I mean, this is radically counterintuitive for us, but if you listen to people who have lived in some of the most brutal, Uh, regimes throughout the world, they all talk about a very similar danger. For instance, Vaclav Havel uh, was a Czech politician and writer. He was imprisoned several times during his life for dissident activities under the brutal communist regime. If anyone had the right to say, I'm the oppressed and they're the oppressor, I'm the good one and they're the bad ones, it would have been him. He had a right to say that. And yet here's what he did say. He once said, the line between good and evil did not run clearly between them and us, but through each person. No one was simply a victim. Everyone was in some measure co-responsible. Vaclav Havel is saying the same thing that the gospel is saying, that we all need to be saved from our sins. Friends, this is challenging both conservative religious people and socially conscious secular people It's saying that we all need to confront the darkness in our hearts. And now we can come back to that question. What is the nature of this darkness that we need to confront in our hearts? Well, remember that the angel told Joseph that everything that was happening is in order to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, which says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which said, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel." Now, here's what this means. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had gone to the king of Judah at the time, a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz was afraid because some other nations were ganging up on him. And so he was trying to get um, the nation of Assyria, which was really the big empire of the day. They were like the big kid on the block. And he was trying to get them to help him defeat these other nations. And so Isaiah comes to him and he says, Ahaz, you're trusting and political and military power. But you should be trusting in God. But one day a child will be born, the true king of Israel, and he will usher in a new kingdom, a new age of peace and wholeness and justice and flourishing for all the nations of the world. Don't trust politics, trust him. Friends, this prophecy about Emmanuel is God's way of challenging us to get beneath the surface of our external moral obedience and to look at the deeper trust structures of our heart. What are the trust structures of your heart? In other words, what do you put your ultimate trust in? That's what God is challenging us here to. In other words, do you is your ultimate trust is it politics, or is it science? or social activism, or expressing your authentic identity to the world around you, or is it your personal achievements and success, or is it your looks, or sexual love, or is it being a really good, righteous person, whether it's the religious version of that, like, well, I go to church, I tithe my money, or maybe it's the secular version of that, hey, I'm on the right side of history, I'm fighting for diversity, equity, and inclusion, heck, I even recycle. Friends, we're We're all somewhere in there, but wherever you're at, God is challenging us to stop trusting in those things and to start trusting in Him. This is God's way of saying, you don't have the technology. You don't have the power. You can't save yourselves, but I can. Will you let me? You know, um, if you read the Gospels, the biographical accounts of Jesus' life, You know, when Jesus began his public ministry, what were the very first words out of his mouth? Jesus had the audacity to tell both deeply religious people and unjustly oppressed people that they needed to repent because they couldn't save themselves from their sins. They wanted Jesus to put a sword in their hands and lead the charge against the Romans They wanted Jesus to affirm their identity as the righteous ones and condemn everybody who didn't belong to their religious tribe. But instead, Jesus told them, no, you need to confront the darkness that's in your own heart. You need to confront the pride, the self-righteousness, the superiority. You need to confront your desire to see others put in their place or even crushed to confront the lust in your heart, not just lust for sex, but lust for power or control or comfort or approval. Jesus is saying we need to confront all of that, all the things that we trust in other than trusting in God. That's what we need to be saved from and we don't have the power to do it ourselves. But Jesus is God who came to earth to do it for us and that leads to our last point. We've seen who Jesus is. He's God. We've seen what Jesus does. He's come to save us from the things that we can't save ourselves from, the darkness in our hearts. But lastly, we need to look at what it means for us. And in reality, all of this means way more than we can possibly talk about in just a few minutes. But this angel's message to Joseph actually shows us a couple of things in particular. And the first one is this. This is telling us that we need to take our place in God's community. Here's what this means. Remember the angel told Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, um, think about this for just a second. When, when the angel tells Joseph this, think about where Joseph was at at this moment. You know, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, not by him, well, can you imagine how that would have felt for him? His first inclination was to divorce Mary quietly. He didn't want to put her to public shame, but still he's thinking this relationship is over. But when the Holy Spirit says this is from, I mean, when the angel says this is from the Holy Spirit, it's the angel's way of saying, Joseph, God is in the middle of this. I know it's painful. I know it's messy. I know it's confusing and you feel betrayed and abandoned, but God is in the middle of this. This is all a part of the story that God is telling and God wants you to take your place in this story. That's what it means when the angel says, take Mary. The word take is a word that means literally to welcome or receive or to embrace something into your life. Take Mary means take take her into your life. Welcome and embrace all of this into your life. Think about what that would have meant for Joseph. You know, For the rest of his life, He's going to be known as that guy. In fact, there are places in some of the other Gospels, like Mark chapter 6 or John chapter 8, where you can see it's very clear that everybody knew that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. This got out. And yet, what Joseph did was he took Mary as his wife. And when he did that, they didn't become just another married couple. In many ways, they became the first church. Take Mary means take the church. In other words, take your place in God's story by embracing your place in the community that embodies that story. It means embrace the pain and the mess, embrace the public disgrace and the shame, but also embrace the intimacy and the commitment to something bigger than yourself. Friends, we can't unpack all that that means here this morning, but but think about this with me. You know, um, in our culture, this is really challenging, one of, one of our biggest cultural assumptions that we have in our world, and here's what I mean, that whether you're um, religious or secular, whether you're conservative or progressive, wherever you're at, we all live in a culture that trains us to see everything as being all about ourselves as individuals, So for instance, I often quote Tara Isabella Burton. She's an expert on modern Western culture and spirituality. She wrote an essay in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, and she said this. She said, the idea of self-care has become a mantra for a newly dominant ideology. According to this gospel of self-actualization, the pursuit of private happiness has increasingly become culturally celebrated as the ultimate goal. Conversely, obligations to imperfect and often downright difficult people are often framed as inimical, which means hostile or harmful, (laughs) to the solitary pursuit of our best life. You know, in our culture, here's what she's saying, in our culture, we see everything as being all about us as individuals. So in spirituality, we see that as being all about my individual relationship with God, That's true in the church, it's true of Christians, but it's also true of all the thousands of other spiritual options that are available out there in our spiritual but not religious world. But to to embrace the call of God here means to embrace God's call to take our place in God's story. To take Mary, to take the church, means to take our place in God's story by taking our place, embracing our place in the community that embodies that story. That's the first thing this means here. But secondly, this means that we give control of our lives to Jesus. You know, the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This means that Joseph didn't get to choose what to name the child. He's being told what to name the child. Now we may say, okay, big deal, so what? But to name something is to have authority over it. So in that culture, especially a patriarchal society where your identity didn't come from your personal achievements like it does for us. Your identity comes from your family, from your, ideo- um, from your genealogy. In that culture, to name your child was a way of asserting and expressing your identity to the world around you. God takes that away from Joseph and says, you are not going to get your identity the way the rest of your culture does. You do not express your identity through this child. This child gives you your identity. You don't have authority over him. He has authority over you. Now, here's what this means for us. Think about the role that religion and spirituality play in our culture for many of us, bo- both in the church, but uh, throughout our culture, religion and spirituality are oftentimes just one component that we mix and match among many other components in our life as part of our own customized identity formation project. So we'll say, well, I've got my work life over here. I chose this career. I've got my relationships here. Here's my social life. And, oh, and over here is my spiritual life. And I've chosen all of these things because this is what works for me. This is part of Who I am, and if I found something else that is a better expression of who I am, then I would choose that instead. But if Jesus is God, come to earth and come into your life, then He is not just one component among many that we mix and match as part of our own customized identity formation project. You do not get, you do not express your identity through Jesus. Jesus gives you your identity. You don't name Him, He names you practically speaking, that means that we bring all of our lives under the authority of Jesus, which is scary. In fact, a lot of people will say things like, well, you know, there's some things Jesus says that have authority in my life, but there are other things that, well, I just can't accept that. Listen, how do you decide which of Jesus' words have authority in your life and which don't? The only way is if there's something else in your life that has greater authority, which means that you're not really trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in it, whatever it is. Listen, I, you know, I understand, believe me, how scary it is to contemplate the possibility of surrendering every aspect of your life to the authority of Jesus. That is scary. But let me ask you this question. You know, here's the thing, you've already given your life completely to something something has ultimate authority in your life and you've given your life to it let me ask you the question how is that working out for you is it delivering all of the peace and fullness and wholeness and prosperity and and flourishing that you really long for and if it's not why not give jesus control of your life you can always take it back what would it look like to give jesus that kind of control in your life Friends, the only way that we can take our place in God's story, take our place in God's community, and and take our hands off our life and give God control of our life is if we see that all of that is something that Jesus has already done for us. And here's what I mean. Think about this with me. You know, Mary, in this scenario, she really had no choice. She's pregnant. She's having this baby. She doesn't really have a choice, but Joseph has a choice here. He didn't have to do this. Joseph chose to embrace the pain in the mass. He chose to embrace the public disgrace and the shame of everything that this would have entailed for his life. He chose to do it. And if you think about it, you realize that in many respects, Jesus is like the ultimate Joseph because Jesus didn't have to come to earth. He chose to do it. Jesus chose to embrace the pain and the mess of the cross. He chose to embrace the public disgrace and the shame of the cross. You know, um, people sometimes will portray the cross as cosmic child abuse. Have you ever heard that? As though the father, God the Father, was inflicting some kind of punishment on on an unwilling son. But if you read the Bible, you will see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were in perfect agreement on this god the father said to, to god the son jesus he said take them embrace them embrace these people and jesus said with all my heart friends the only way that we can take our place in god's story take our place in god's community and take our hands off our lives and give control to jesus is if we see that on the cross jesus took us Jesus loved you so much that he embraced you. He embraced you by opening his arms wide, wide enough to nail them to the cross so that he could embrace us, even though it meant giving up control over his life. Friends, there is nothing more out of control than having your hands and your feet nailed to a cross. And yet Jesus embraced all of that so that he could embrace you Jesus took our sins so that we could receive his salvation. He took the public disgrace and shame of the cross so that we could receive his honor and glory. Identity so that he could give us a name and an identity that lasts forever. Take your in this world by embracing your place in the community that embodies that story. Give Jesus over your life. There is nothing scarier than that. But friends, there's nothing we know. But God does. Let him wield it in your life. You will never. This morning. For choosing us. For loving us. For coming to earth. And saving us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would um, be more and more powerfully at work in all of our hearts. Lord, wherever we're at, With Jesus, whether we've been following Jesus for decades or or we're still not sure what we think about Jesus, or maybe we're sure we think it's all a sham. But Lord, wherever we're at this morning, I pray that you would get ever more deeply and powerfully at work in our hearts to help us confront the darkness that regardless of what we believe still remains in our own hearts and lives. And I pray that you would especially strip us of the illusion that we have the power to overcome the darkness in our hearts and in this world and make this world the place it ought to be. Help us to see Jesus, the real Jesus, not the invention of our culture or the invention of other people, Lord, but the true Jesus who came to earth, God in the flesh, God with us, who died on a cross and rose from the dead so that he could save us and deliver us, not just from our sins, but could rescue the whole world and make this world the place that you created it to be. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.